If you appreciate things from your youth, you've come to the right place. That is the truth. Movies, TV, and more from childhood. The When We Were Young podcast is here. <laughs> is it still good? <laughs> I'm not sure if the podcast is still good after that musical <laughs> intro. But. Hey. Um, welcome to the last episode of When We Were Young. <laughs> welcome to When We Were Young. I'm Becky, the podcast host, most likely to have no thought at all about my own reward. I really didn't come here of my own accord. Just don't say I'm damned for all time. I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to be cock of the walk when I'm walking alone. <laughs> and I'm Chris, your podcast host most likely to give all his descomisados a magical moment. Or two. <laughs> On today's episode, we are headed to Bethlehem, Buenos Aires, Broadway, and below a Parisian opera house. And a fucking junkyard. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but it didn't start with a B, so... <laughs> and hell. <laughs> As we discuss the many musicals of Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber, we decided to focus on Andrew Lloyd Webber because although there are plenty of great titans of musical theater, and there are plenty of great shows we loved as kids... Andrew Lloyd Webber and his musical soundtracks released in the 1980s were so larger than life that they were basically unavoidable, even if you never got a chance to see one of his shows live. So we discovered on this podcast in previous episodes that we all kind of have uh, a big thing for Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. I think each of us have like a separate musical of his that really meant something to us as kids. So I'd love to know, uh, first of all, like what's your favorite Broadway show of all time? And then what's your history with musical theater and with Andrew Lloyd Webber shows in particular. How long you got? <laughs> <laughs> Just to kick it off, I'd say my favorite Broadway show of all time is probably Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Or maybe Book of Mormon. But I don't have like a ton of ongoing experience going to Broadway shows. Like growing up in the South, like there were always, you know, Broadway shows. And my dad's family lived in St. Louis. And there are some famous theaters in Missouri, like and in St. Louis. Um, so I had chances to see shows and often like to see them. And those shows were basically exclusively Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Um, I saw Cats at least seven times. Oh, my God. <laughs> you're still seeing it to this day. <laughs> so you have two lives left, basically, <laughs> is what you're saying. I guess so. And then I float on that big tire to the sky. <laughs> uh, and I saw Phantom of the Opera at least eight or nine times. Oh, my God. Seth. Um, this included, we one time we took a road trip up to New York, my parents and I, for like two weeks. And it was great. Like we saw Boston and got to see a lot of kind of New England sites. Uh, and we saw Cats and Phantom on Broadway. Um, and that blew my 11-year-old little mind. Um, I By that time, I definitely knew every word to both of those by heart. So you had already seen them or listened to the soundtrack before the Broadway shows you saw, or the Broadway shows were your ticket into to loving these shows? Oh, no. I, I was already fully committed to the Andrew Lloyd Webber lifestyle and religion before I saw them on Broadway, but that just kind of cemented my love of that. So, and, and I mean, in retrospect, it makes perfect sense that I had this, like, intense Andrew Lloyd Webber love affair, because for the first 10 or 11 years of my life, I pretty much only listened to classical music and Disney's soundtracks. And I feel like that really 
kind of lends itself to that style of songwriting, to that kind of theatricality. And not only that, but around that same time, like 10 or 11, I first heard the Beatles. Um, a friend of mine at summer camp, yes, it's one more thing that <laughs> happened at summer camp. Perpetual summer camp. Yeah, I was formed and just grew up entirely within the confines of a summer camp. Uh, one of my friends at camp made me a mixtape of Beatles songs. And I really, really fell in love with Beatles at this point in time. And also I feel like... And we'll get into kind of Andrew Lloyd Webber's influences, but that was such a natural kind of progression of that as well. Just kind of that that sentimental, um, very heartfelt, bombastic pop music. Did you see Phantom and Cats with your parents all those times? Yes, I believe I only saw it with my parents. So that was like the thing that the Pearsons did. <laughs> it, when we were going to go to the theater, because this was before the time when Cirque du Soleil was coming near us. Uh-huh. So this was like the, the warm up to Cirque du Soleil, basically. <laughs> you guys just had like Weber Wednesdays or something? Yeah. On, on Wednesdays, <laughs> we wear Weber. <laughs> did you know that there were other shows in the world that you could see? Too? Most definitely. Well, and like it, it also fit because my mom and dad had like Vinyls of Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack and Joseph, I believe, um, and eventually Cats as well. Like there was, there was a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber's music specifically that would kind of be in heavy rotation in the Pearson household. Kind of through exposure, I was coerced into enjoying this music, but I very <laughs> readily went along as well. Chris, my history with musical theater is less extensive. <laughs> I mean, we haven't heard Becky's story yet, but I think it's safe to say that I probably had less Broadway in my childhood than than she did. It's a good bet. Nobody's <laughs> perfect. It's okay, Chris. I did see Phantom of the Opera on stage in Seattle when I was probably 11-ish, I'm guessing, and I enjoyed it. You know, it's it's quite a spectacle. The um, chandelier comes down on the audience, not actually, but very nearly. It's meant to simulate a death by chandelier. It's a kind of a fun show for kids. I'm sure we'll talk more about it. But it was a really good gateway drug into musical theater. So I really liked the overture, <laughs> the very famous theme music that you can probably hear in your head without any reminder. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's right there. <laughs> yeah, I got the soundtrack, I think, just for that overture for the most part. But would occasionally listen to the rest of it. It was probably the first musical soundtrack I ever heard, along with Fiddler on the Roof, which was also sort of childhood favorite because my mom took me to see a show, like a community theater kind of show of it that a friend of hers was in. But that was my way because obviously I didn't live near Broadway and we weren't a big theater family. It was rare that my parents would go to the theater. My grandparents would go sometimes. And I know that they were familiar with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Until the movie Evita in 1996, I did not really have any particular connection to a show, a musical show. And even though this was a movie, it was very much the soundtrack that I connected to more so than the movie. I actually have only seen the movie probably like three or four times, but I have listened to the soundtrack hundreds of times. I did see the movie Evita in the theaters, but I wasn't like super impressed with it. I think I was more into the girl I saw the movie with than I was into the movie itself. I remember being a little bored. But then when I heard the soundtrack playing again at my grandfather's house, I have like a very distinct memory of hearing it. And I borrowed the soundtrack from him and then I would not give it back. So eventually my mom had to buy me my own copy of it. (laughs) It was the only way I would release it. Um, 
And at, at that point, I was into like the fun kind of upbeat songs like Buenos Aires and Good Night and Thank You. And then later, I kind of developed like a deeper connection to some of the lyrics and the overall kind of story of the show. So I have managed to see a handful of stage musicals. A lot of them have been college level, like at USC. I've seen some shows on Broadway when I lived in New York. I am a casual fan of musical theater, but I'm also not someone who really gets really into the stage experience. Like I like seeing them once. And for me, it's really important to kind of see them and get that experience and get into the story of them because I really do not appreciate musical soundtracks unless I have some kind of context for what the story is about. But I don't know if I've ever seen a musical that like really like thrilled me the way that like a really great movie will. Like it's always kind of a fun experience and I appreciate it and sometimes really like some of the music. Uh, I might say Hamilton is the closest I've probably come to like seeing a show and just being like, wow, that was amazing. Um, I saw it here in LA. With uh, me. Yes. <laughs> Becky made sure that I saw him. <laughs> I've seen things that I've liked, but I also, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say that I have a favorite musical exactly that I've actually seen performed where I say, yeah, that's, that's the one that I really, you know, respond to and, and love the way that a lot of other people do. You wouldn't just say Evita is your favorite musical? I might, except I saw it on stage and didn't really like it. Yeah. And I also saw that with you. <laughs> yeah. So, we'll, I mean, we'll talk about more about that experience, I think, when we talk about Evita, but I don't know if I actually like it as a show. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So, I hope you're comfortable because I'm going to talk for three hours. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, Becky has like 12 pages of handwritten notes, <laughs> double-sided. Dear Andrew Lloyd Webber, I love you. Uh, <laughs> Do you love me? Circle one, yes or no or McCavity. So I'm from Long Island, and when you're that close to Manhattan, seeing theater on Broadway is just like honestly a normal part of your life. It is totally normal for somebody who doesn't seem like they're in a musical theater, kind of like my dad to go to the theater all the time. It's just the thing you do. So that was one of the things my family actually did together was we would go to the city and see Broadway shows. Um, I saw my first one when I was five years old. It was Meet Me in St. Louis. I think the second show I ever saw was Phantom or Les Mis. Or it was Les Mis or Phantom or Phantom or Les Mis. It was one of those. But... <laughs> or it was both simultaneously. <laughs> it was Les Phantom. The first CD I ever bought was Highlights to Phantom of the Opera. I thought that Phantom of the Opera was opera, even though I saw it on Broadway. But I honestly was like seven years old when I saw it. So like, I thought that was the opera. I think I did too. I remember thinking like, ooh, I like opera. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm a fan of opera and phantoms and such. <laughs> <laughs> so I took piano lessons when I was young and we had every songbook to every Broadway show we saw. So I learned all the piano parts to phantom songs, Les Mis, Miss Saigon, Rent and the Dick Tracy soundtrack, <laughs> the I'm Breathless. Yeah, I mean, I forgot to touch on that earlier because I started taking piano in like second grade and like the highlights from Phantom and the Cat soundtrack, those were definitely piano songbooks I would bust out a lot. Yeah, honestly, if we saw it on Broadway, I would get the piano songbook and my sister also played, so we would both use it and we would get a mug from each show. <laughs> so for, for going Aww. up, like I literally had mugs from even obscure musicals that you wouldn't even remember are <laughs> musicals, but we like that's what we did. We got the mug. <laughs> I performed a musical theater growing up, like in camp productions and then in high school. I went to a theater based high school, so we did a musical every single year. So it was just like part of my life. I love musical theater. 
so much so I think I was like the musical theater person on our floor in college yes I, I can confirm <laughs> which is like it's weird because I came from New York where it's just a part of everyday life and then I'm in LA and apparently I'm the weird show tune person and that is coincidentally <laughs> what it's like to move to New York as a movie person and everyone's <laughs> in the theater and they're like who are you <laughs> I wanted to go to USC for a lot of reasons, but on the tour, they said that there was a Broadway musical class, and I was like, I'm going to go here, and I'm going to take it. <laughs> and then I took it but as soon as I had room in my schedule, and not only did I get an A, but I was literally circling things wrong in the textbook. <laughs> and I was like, that person. She was that girl. <laughs> oh, no. Well, you just misspell the title of a song, and you put the part in parentheses that shouldn't be in parentheses. <laughs> Becky's reading from the letter she wrote to the textbook publisher. Yeah. Um, I love musicals. I love them so much. Um, I was really... I'm sorry. I told you I'm going to talk forever, but I was really shy growing up, and around third grade, I discovered I could sing, and the first song I ever sang in public in third grade was Castle on a Cloud from Les Mis, and then I think the second one was Think of Me from Phantom. So these shows were, like, really important to me. They were... I, I guess at the time, I loved Disney, and I loved... Andrew Lloyd Webber, and I loved these big, giant 1980s, early 90s musicals that, at the time, everything was like this giant spectacle. Phantom had the chandelier falling that you talked about. Miss Saigon had a helicopter. Mm-hmm. Les Mis had the revolving barricade that was this huge thing. Cats had that levitating tire thing that I don't, I'm not even really sure what it is, but... It's e- a levitating tire thing. <laughs> like, even the stage itself for Cats is like, oh, there's like giant milk cartons and like giant versions mm-hmm. of little things that because we're supposed to be like the cat size i think there was a helicopter in the who's tommy as well i thought you were gonna say cats <laughs> <laughs> but like everything in the everything in the 80s and 90s at the time like the the trend was this larger than life musical disneylandish kind of thing before disney would come in with like the lion king and shows like that but that's kind of where it was going and i think it really had something to do with andrew lloyd webber and these like giant huge productions um, everything was just bombastic and melodramatic, and it was, as Chris said, like a perfect segue for kids to get into theater. So I feel like we were coming of age at the perfect time for us to get kind of obsessed with Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, even if you weren't in New York seeing these shows. Like, they just kind of like, because of touring productions or the soundtracks, they were just really good for kids to get into. Yeah. Wait, Becky, you never shared your favorite musical, which is bizarre. I feel like it should be tattooed on your forehead, but I don't actually know the answer to this. (laughs) Well, you don't know the answer because I have a different pick for every uh, (laughs) decade of my life. (laughs) Oh, God. So when I was young, I'm pretty sure my favorites were Les Mis and Phantom. When I was in high school, it was Rent. Mm -hmm. In college, college, (laughs) I would say it was Into the Woods, Sondheim. Into the Woods. Um. I would say in the last few years, I absolutely love Assassins, which is another Sondheim show. That's probably one of the best performances I've ever seen. I think it was 2005. It was on Broadway, and I had liked the soundtrack, but I just, you know, wanted to see a Sondheim, and I went and saw the show, and the show blew me away. And then it became one of my favorite musicals of all time, now that I had that context of actually seeing it. Because it's actually like, there's only like nine songs, and the rest is like a really great book. This is, like, really random, but the musical I've seen the most... I've seen Phantom three times, but the musical I've seen the most is American Idiot. (laughs) Which is is the Green Day musical. Oh, man. That's funny, (laughs) 
It seems yeah. very off-brand. <laughs> sure, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but American Idiot is probably by Green Day is probably one of my favorite albums of all time. And they paired it with beautiful Broadway harmonies and melodies. So it's like, well, obviously I love this. So I actually listen to the Broadway soundtrack way more than I listen to the original like album by Green Day. Hmm. I don't think I meant to see it four times, but it just kind of happened. Because <laughs> I saw it with Chris when it came to Berkeley. Because I didn't know if it was going to go to Broadway. With Green Day and with the With Green Day, I met Billy Joe Armstrong and Trey Cool in the... I was staring at the back of their heads during the show. Um, then it came to Broadway, so I was like, well, I got to see it on Broadway. So I saw it on Broadway. And then uh, it was back, it was in LA, and my husband hadn't seen it. So I was like, well, let's, I'll go see it with you. And then I got free tickets. <laughs> and then so one time <laughs> you just like woke up in a daze in the Pantages. Like, wait, did I just watch this again? Yeah. And one time you just stood outside the Pantages and beat an old lady <laughs> to death and stole her tickets and ran in. <laughs> So I think that's kind of funny. That's I've just seen that the most. But I think I also love Hamilton right now. Like, if there's going to be a Broadway show that I just, like, throw on, it's probably Hamilton. Because it's so long. <laughs> it's good. It's it's not a quick... It's like you, you get invested in it. If you have a long road trip, just put on some Hamilton. By the time you get there, you'll be, like, ten songs in. If I'm in the car, I will throw you out. I do like Hamilton, but I do not enjoy musical theater as, like, a companion to a road trip. I can tell you that much right now. Oh, my now. God. Wow. How have we ever gone on a road trip together? Yeah. Seriously. It's my favorite. So those are my favorite shows. So all of the shows. Yeah, all of the shows. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you yeah. don't know what it is. <laughs> Got it. I think if you were going to ask me, I would say Assassins. Okay. Well, he did. So there we go. <laughs> that was my 10-minute answer. <laughs> so we're just going to cut out the first 10 minutes, right? So let's learn a little bit about Sir Baron Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber was born in Kensington, London, the elder son of William Lloyd Webber, a composer and organist, and Jean Hermione Johnstone, a violinist and pianist. His younger brother, Julian Lloyd Webber, is a noted solo cellist. Andrew Lloyd Webber was a child musical prodigy who began starting, uh, who began writing his own music at a very young age, uh, a suite of six pieces at the age of nine. Uh, he put on, you know, like little fun productions at home with his brother and his family members. And he began to kind of set music to a book of poetry by T.S. Eliot called The Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats at the Age of 15. Well, that sounds familiar. Yeah, we may actually end up talking about what that became in a bit. I was about to say that... <laughs> The musical Cats does indeed sound like something a child would perform <laughs> for their parents. Yeah, it's not just conceptually adolescent. <laughs> in 1965, Lloyd Webber was a Queen's Scholar at Westminster School and studied history for a single term, but he abandoned the course to go to the Royal College of Music and pursue musical theater. At 17, he was introduced to the 20-year-old aspiring pop songwriter Tim Rice in 1965, uh, they had a first collaboration that didn't quite work out, and then they were commissioned to write a pop cantata along the lines of some other shows that were based on the Old Testament. They got paid like a very small advance for this, and that resulted in Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, a retelling of the biblical story of Joseph. That got them some favorable reviews in the London Times, and a lot of subsequent performances where Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber revised the show and added new songs to expand it to a more substantial level length. It began as like a 
kind of 20-minute piece. They continued expanding the show, and that culminated in a 1972 stage musical, and then a two-hour-long production staged at the West End in 1973 on the back of the success of Jesus Christ Superstar. So, in the wake of Jesus and Joseph, Andrew Lloyd Webber became the most commercially successful composer in history, and as Becky was saying, and as all of us are kind of saying, a household name, not just in theater, but in kind of pop culture and in pop music. Yeah, like a lot of people don't know Stephen Sondheim or other like really big names from the musical theater, but I think people do know Andrew Lloyd Webber. I think people do know the name Stephen Sondheim, but just go to a random person in the Midwest and be like, sing me a Sondheim show tune. They probably couldn't. But if you're like, sing me Andrew Lloyd Webber, they'd be like, oh, memory, oh, phantom, oh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Like there's there's such a difference between these two like titans of musical theater, but he is just so larger than life like accessible. Yeah, I think you might be overestimating the Midwest's <laughs> familiarity <laughs> with Sondheim, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I would definitely say, yeah. It, I, I feel like those were kind of, it, not opposing camps, but kind of different tribes of people Yeah, were into each of them. And, you know, maybe some were into both. But, but you're saying that they wouldn't even know his name? No. Oh, okay. No, no really. I, no, right. I don't think so. Like, I didn't know who that was until... You came to the big city? Until I met Becky, basically. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, Andrew Lloyd Webber has written and staged 20 musicals. Um, and, of course, there are tons of titles that you know, we don't even need to bring up because they weren't gigantic successes. But of course, we're going to talk about some of his biggest productions today. But his TV and movie work also amounts to 367 credits, <laughs> not just film adaptations of his plays, but also from songs of his that have been part of other movies. Mm. Um, he has won over 45 major awards, uh, including seven Olivier Awards, seven Tonys, four Grammys, two Emmys, one Oscar, one Golden Globe, one Brit, and 14 Ivor novellos, which I have no idea what those are. They sound like cigars. <laughs> <laughs> so he's an egot. He's an egoto tug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the work keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> he was also awarded a knighthood in 1992. It is not a joke to say Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber. He also received a peerage from Queen Elizabeth II for services to music in 1997 giving him also the title Baron. So he is Sir Baron Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Uh, he is a record breaker in a whole lot of ways, not just in terms of soundtrack sales and stuff like that, but he, in 1991, he became the first and only composer to have six productions running simultaneously in the West End. And his theater company now owns seven theaters in London. Doesn't he also have the distinction of like having three Broadway shows at one time, which I think is the record? It Close. Actually, last year he had four productions wow. running at the same time on Broadway. The shows were Sunset Boulevard, Cats, Phantom of the Opera, and School of Rock the Musical. He now holds the record for most concurrent shows on Broadway, and he shares that record with Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mm. Um, and that'll also bring us to touch on some of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical influences, because he isn't just a product of kind of the Beatles and especially Paul McCartney's style of songwriting with, you know, very melodramatic arrangements, sweeping strings, orchestras. Um, he's also a product of the 80s, I would say. There's a lot of synthesizers mm -hmm. and electronic elements that go through really most of these soundtracks to one degree or another. Also, he's musically influenced very directly by Rodgers and Hammerstein, by Kander and Ebb, by all of the classic Hollywood composers. 
So that will lead us into our first discussion of a specific Andrew Lloyd Webber joint. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a Tim Rice Andrew Lloyd Webber joint? Exactly. <laughs> Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which was originally written as a 20-minute pop cantata for a boys' school in London in 1968. What's a cantata? <laughs> like, what's a cantata? <laughs> I be- it's, a pa- it's a pastiche of different musical styles, I believe. I thought it was an egg dish. <laughs> You put some veggies in it. We weren't tested on that in my musical theater class. A cantata is a medium-length narrative piece of music for voices with instrumental accompaniment, typically with solos, chorus, and orchestra. So it's a short musical. Yeah, it's like a play novella, (laughs) basically. A musiclet. (laughs) The musical is based on the biblical story of Joseph, whose father gave him a coat of many colors, which is not referred to as an amazing Technicolor dream coat in the actual Bible. (laughs) Uh, He is Jacob's favorite son, and he can interpret dreams. So uh, the story follows him as he's sold to slavery by his jealous brothers, but then rises to power, advising the Pharaoh. The full version debuted on the West End in 1973 as kind of a sequel to Jesus Christ Superstar, which had been released uh, in the meantime while Joseph kept getting more colors added onto his (laughs) many-colored coat. And then it debuted on Broadway in 1982. It was nominated for six Tonys, but did not win any of them. So I actually have seen a production of Joseph, which is rare because I haven't seen that many of his shows produced. But um, I saw a children's theater production of it starring kids. So that was a good introduction to this musical. (laughs) Did you guys ever see this on stage or anything? I didn't know anything about Joseph my whole life until I got free tickets like two years ago and Hmm. saw it at the Pantages. I didn't know anything about it. You knew a few lyrics that I would quote sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes, but mostly I knew there was a coat. That's all I knew. (laughs) I knew it was Bible-y. I had had no idea what I was in for. I had a lot of experience with the songs. I did not see any productions of it on stage. I was in elementary school. I was part of a production uh, one year that was a Broadway review uh, of selections from a bunch of different musicals. So we did a couple numbers from Joseph and also I think a couple numbers numbers from Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, But I was just very familiar with all the songs from Joseph. Um, And also my mom was in the choir at church and they also did kind of Broadway review type things every once in a while as like an event. Um, So yeah, so I would hear like her choir singing those songs as well. I think a good entry point into this musical, one of the first songs is uh, Joseph's Coat, which kind of lays out the plot for you. You got a coat. So you heard there the narrator, which was written to be a female or a male, but has traditionally been female in the more recent productions. And uh, yeah, Joseph, and there's lots of singing about colors and and looking good in a coat. 
So when I saw this at the Pantages and I had no idea what I was expecting, I think I was expecting something more like Jesus Christ Superstar because I was vaguely familiar with that show at the time. And it is not anything like Jesus Christ <laughs> no. Superstar. It is a children's play. Yeah, very much and so. And that might have been obvious if I had just done a modicum of research about this show, <laughs> but I didn't. And I was like, what am I watching? I, uh, I'm not into this show. <laughs> I I didn't have fun watching it, the performance, and just listening to the soundtrack again for this. I'm just not into it. I wouldn't say that it's bad, but it's just children's theater. Like, it just feels like it's not something that, like, I feel like children and adults can enjoy. I just feel like children can enjoy it. But that's just, I don't know. It's not for me at all. Yeah, it's not my bag either. Um, like, even at the time, it was one of those where anytime someone would play the soundtrack, I would cherry pick most of the songs. Just, I think most of it's kind of forgettable. Yeah, I would say the show is a very Andrew Lloyd Webber show. Even though this is kind of the first one that hit big, I think it really has a lot of his hallmarks in it, which is like a mix of musical styles, sung through storytelling. But the story is a fairly complicated Bible story. Like, it's not really, like, a simple story to tell. And there's a lot of details, you know, revealed in the music. It also has very cheesy moments. <laughs> Especially if you watch the Donny Osmond 1999 oh my film. God. <laughs> which we watched a few clips of. And I totally recommend you smoke a little weed and then you go on YouTube and you watch some of these clips. <laughs> like, you're going to need a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the show was released in the late 60s and is called The Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, so I kind of feel like that was maybe built into it a little bit, but... <laughs> I mean, dreamcoats don't become Technicolor on their own, folks. <laughs> the 1999 version is the one with Donny Osmond. It also co-stars Joan Collins and Richard Attenborough. <laughs> what? <laughs> you really have to see it what? to believe it. It is <laughs> somewhere between like a filmed version of this and a, just a filmed stage musical because yeah. they have special <laughs> effects not or not very special effects. <laughs> mediocre <It is>. effects <laughs> it is technicolor i will give them that it was very colorful it's really great to hate watch i mean <laughs> joseph is not that interesting a character and i feel like donny osmond is perfectly cast and also terrible at the same time <laughs> yes like yes. He i don't perfectly know perfectly bad <laughs> yeah they couldn't have picked a better person to play a bad character. <laughs> yeah. I think I had the fortune to see this in pro what was probably an edited version, because I don't think all of the songs were included in the children's performance. So I got the highlights, and there are some really catchy songs in here. So I ended up like having an affinity for like three or four of the songs from the soundtrack, and... Sorry, not sorry, but Donny Osmond is my preferred <laughs> oh, singer. Because wow. I think he does a good job of performing this. His version of, there's a kind of a heavier ballad that doesn't really feel like the rest of the show, but it's called Close Every Door. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really beautiful song on its own, and I really like his performance of it. If my life were important, I would ask, will I live or die? But I know the answers lie far from this world.
I think that's definitely the loveliest song on the soundtrack by a long distance. This is a question that comes up <laughs> continuously for me throughout Andrew Lloyd Webber's musicals. So I'm just going to bring it up now because this is the first time <laughs> that it came up. How is he not gay? <laughs> <laughs> What? Because there's a rainbow dream coat? Because <laughs> like, he's just a musical theater guy? I mean, not everybody's he's... gay. <laughs> oh. Becky, to be fair, Close Every Door was originally entitled Suck Every Dick. <laughs> <laughs> why? 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 Just the lyrics, I look handsome, I look smart, I am a walking work of art, and he's walking around with a multicolored coat? A rainbow colored coat? Well, you know what? He's British. <laughs> <laughs> This is so. true. They have a different concept of fashion, Chris, and accessorizing. Mm. They had they do their own thing there. When you're European, people can mistake you for being gay. I know it's another place, and it was another time. <laughs> but I would like to send us out on "Go Go Go Joseph," probably the most well-known song from this musical. Just as you know, something to consider in line with my questioning. Okay. It's a song about how Joseph was a go-go boy, right? <laughs> It's just that I have not been wrong Yeah, I'm about to have a nervous disco breakdown if you don't stop that. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) So let's move on to Jesus Christ Superstar, which was the next play that Andrew Lloyd Webber released with Tim Rice. It began as a concept album released in 1970. The first concert of the show premiered in July 1971 in Pittsburgh, and the show opened on Broadway October 12th, 1971. It was nominated for five Tonys. It didn't win any. I find that kind of surprising, honestly. In 2012, Andrew Lloyd Webber said of the opening night production of Jesus Christ Superstar, I hugely objected to the original New York production, which was probably the worst night of my life. It was a vulgar travesty. So he had mixed opinions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The production was condemned by many religious groups because the character of of Judas is seen as too sympathetic and his criticism of Jesus was seen as offensive. (laughs) Jewish groups were also offended that it bolstered the anti-Semitic belief that Jews were responsible for Jesus' death. So obviously, you're going to have a show called Jesus Christ Superstar. Somebody's going to be upset. Yeah. I mean, I'm already upset just by the title. (laughs) (laughs) I remember watching the movie for this in like seventh or eighth grade, and I was not into it. I think I I really liked Ben Vereen. Um, He wasn't even in the movie, but I listened to the Broadway soundtrack, and he was in the original Broadway soundtrack. And I really liked Ben Vereen, so I remember I borrowed somebody's Broadway soundtrack and would only really listen to the Judas parts. Well, wow. <laughs> you know what that says know, about you. I know. I was never really into this show at all, except for maybe one or two songs of Judas. And then maybe like a year ago, before we decided to do this podcast, I just would like gave it another, you know, let's just put this on. And I started to get more into it. And then it just kind of snowballed where we decided to do this podcast. So I started to listen to it more. NBC just did a televised live event of Jesus Christ Superstar. And I... Not only do I think it's like the best 
one of the the recent live TV events of Broadway musicals, but like I sat down and watched it and didn't like look at my phone. <laughs> like I watched it from start to finish twice. I thought it was amazing. And now I think it's just so funny in the last year, I got really into this musical um, after not really caring one way or another about it my whole life. I don't know about you guys, uh, how you felt about it. It's funky. <laughs> <laughs> I heard of this musical when I was a kid, too, and was kind of familiar with Jesus Christ Superstar as a song. The title is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, knowingly ridiculous. I think it's kind of going for that. But I feel like it, it's it's hard for me to take this very seriously. And I have never seen it really performed all the way through. I've never seen it on stage. I think I've seen some numbers from it. And I've seen, like, pieces of the movie, but I have not personally connected with it. It's not a story that I'm really that interested in. You know, it's a very famous story, obviously, but um, it's already been told so many ways. And I know that this is a different take on it, but I don't know. Like, it, it's just not, it's kind of not for me. Like, I went through the soundtrack kind of trying to find something that I was really into and just didn't find a number that really, like, grabbed me. <sighs> There's such a theme, especially like revisiting all this music now, I kind of realize the extent to which like Andrew Lloyd Webber is always like simultaneously catchy and corny as hell. And sometimes those two are kind of reconcilable and just everything's just enjoyable on its own merits, but sometimes it's just way too much for me to handle. And like Joseph and Jesus are definitely some of his more disco-inflected visions, and I... Much like the music of ABBA that a lot of people really, really deeply connect to, I can't really get too much into it. And not just for, like, the kind of sonic reasons of, like, disco-style instrumentation and all that, but more the kind of both being winky and not really seeming fully genuine about what they're singing about. So I can totally see where you guys are coming from because it really did take me a long time to get into the soundtrack. And I think... Honestly, seeing the NBC version that was actually really good helped. There's just context when you actually see the people interacting and when you get really good people, because I don't really like the Jesus on any of these soundtracks, but I loved John Legend's performance. So that kind of got me into the rest of the soundtrack because Jesus on the other concept albums in Broadway, he's kind of boring. It's not like there's a few. I know. Hear that out there, Christian groups? Jesus, boring. And we're boycotted. Yeah. Well, they, I think like, I feel like they were like, well, Judas is this like rockin' black guy, rock and roll, very 1970s. And they wanted to like counterbalance that with like this ethereal Jesus to like ballady kind of. But I was like, I don't like that. Yeah, he's kind of a hippie, right? I mean. I guess, but like he's just kind of lame. And I felt like John Legend at least gave some sort of like soul to it that was missing with other Jesuses, but the things that... I want to play a few tracks that just got me into the soundtrack at all was... It's all Judas. <laughs> so here's... Judas Superstar. <laughs> yes. He's the lead of the play. I mean, honestly. Becky's actually writing her own musical called It's All Judas. <laughs> <laughs> it's all Judas. <laughs> so this is Damned for All Time. I came because I had to. I'm the one who sold. Jesus can't control it like he did before. And furthermore, I know that Jesus thinks so too. Jesus wouldn't mind that I was here with you. I haven't thought at all about my own reward. I really didn't come here on my own accord. Just do So just like hearing that, I'm just like, 
I love singing along with it. Like, it's just like, it's so, it's, it's awesome. I love Judas's role in this musical. Um, and I never really felt very strongly about the, the title track, Superstar. I actually did think it was kind of cheesy. I, I'm about to show you the, the NBC version. I really do like that. I love the character of Judas because, like, he's often sarcastic in the show. He's critical of Jesus, and I think that it's a really great way to present the story of Jesus's last days, which is what this show is, but from a character who's, like, critical of this person, and it's like an outsider narrating um, what's going on. And I just felt like that was actually really clever. This is one of the last songs of the show, and it's kind of, like, the audience is asking Jesus, does he actually think he's a god or a man? And it's just asking these questions that there is no answer and people have been debating them for thousands of years. So it's almost like meta, like going outside the characters in the show and it's asking all these questions that'll never be answered. I just felt like it's really interesting. And then on top of that, just the whole like rock, not doo-wop, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the word, but like the background singers and like just the whole thing like totally works for me, especially when you can see a performance of somebody who's performing it really, really well. somebody perform these songs it's so entertaining and so i think that's why i really like this show one of the things i'm not into is mary magdalene either like i think her character is pretty lame <laughs> she kind of just pops in sings a song about jesus and leaves <laughs> um and as far as like you know wanting to have like strong female characters i i really wish the show really did but it doesn't so nor does the bible <laughs> <laughs> nor does the bible exactly yeah i think it's interesting the themes that you bring up and why you like that song for me andrew lloyd weber is not usually great at nuance and I can imagine sort of a more complex and more kind of subtle version of all of these things working really well but for me like I just can't overcome like the cheese of that song and like it's just very repetitive and I don't really hear anything that really sells any of that to me it's just it kind of feels a lot like other retellings of this story where it's just kind of basic and it doesn't really feel like a human story to me. But it is really interesting how, for someone who's not necessarily known for religion, how his first two shows are very biblical and... They're very, very different. Yeah. And very biblical. I wonder when he was researching Joseph that he just started getting ideas for for Jesus Christ Superstar. And he didn't have to make that a children's show, so he clearly didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so now we'll head on over to Buenos Aires. 
<laughs> Great segue. <laughs> it won't be easy. You'll think it's strange. Like Jesus Christ Superstar, Evita was also released as a rock opera concept album in 1976. The origins come from Tim Rice, Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, frequent collaborator, uh, who was inspired by a radio program he heard about the life of Ava Perone, and he remembered her from a postage stamp. <laughs> <laughs> So he sought out more info on her. He eventually ended up traveling to Buenos Aires uh, and named his daughter Ava after her. So he was really into Ava Perum. (laughs) When he told Andrew Lloyd Webber that he wanted to do a musical based on her life, Andrew Lloyd Webber said, nah, he was not interested. (laughs) And he went off to do something else. Uh, When that didn't work out for him, he kind of came back to Tim Rice and said, all right, let's do this Avida thing. The musical is based on the life of Eva Maria Duarte de Perón, first lady, wife of Juan Perón, who died at 33 of cancer. She was a lower-class woman who became an actress and then a beloved but controversial political figure, working on behalf of labor unions and women's suffrage, amongst other causes. And she was very disliked by the military and the upper class, as you will prominently hear in the musical. And the musical is narrated by a character named Che, who's kind of loosely based on Che Guevara. It premiered on the West End in 1978 with Elaine Page, and then on Broadway in 1979 with Patti Lapone. It won eight Tonys, including Best Musical, Book, Score, and Actress. So it pretty much swept. It is also a movie with Madonna, <laughs> released in 1996, <laughs> as an afterthought. I will just put that out there. <laughs> I believe most of us know of Evita, though, through the Madonna movie. That is true. Certainly I do. <laughs> Me too. I certainly did not know that Patti LuPone originated this role. It was interesting to learn that. And I found a fantastic quote from her from 2011, where Patti commented, He writes crap music. Evita was his best score, Evita in its bizarreness. When I first heard it, I thought, I swear to God, he hated women. There are some very romantic moments in his music, and there is some real trash that he doesn't even think about parting with. (laughs) He's not a very good editor of his own stuff. And like, my god, if you could condense (laughs) all of what I feel about Andrew Lloyd Webber now into like a small paragraph, that's it. Well, podcast is over. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Patty. Yeah, yeah. We can wrap it up. Thanks, Patty Lapone. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, she she certainly didn't hold back. Like, holy shit. She doesn't hold back. What was your first kind of experience with the Vita? And have you ever seen it on stage? Or are, do you have a connection to the musical itself? So I ne- I've not seen a stage production of Evita ever, but I, like Becky, had the highlights of Andrew Lloyd Webber CD, as well as there was one that was like a love songs of Andrew Lloyd Webber CD compilation. So each of those certainly had at least a few songs from Evita, like Another Suitcase in Another Hall, Don't Cry for Me, Argentina. Um, so I always really loved those songs and connected to the kind of spirit in them, because, I mean, it's a story about a woman who was very much an egomaniacal narcissist, and uh, characters like that have always been fascinating to me. Um, so, yes, definitely my first exposure to the whole story of Evita was watching the Madonna movie, and I kind of instantly loved it, and that was one of the things that made me first really enjoy Madonna and seek out more of her music. But did you hear someone else singing the songs before you heard Madonna? Yes, definitely. Those versions of the Andrew Lloyd Webber songs f- that I had heard on those compilations were from the original Broadway and or London cast recordings. Saw the movie because I liked Madonna. And I like musicals, but 
mostly I was just Madonna and I didn't know anything about it at all. I remember not liking it at the time, the movie, but I loved the soundtrack, you know, would listen to it a lot. I believe when I met you, we had that in common, <laughs> but it was one of those things like I just some like maybe once every five years, I'll throw the soundtrack on and I still love it, but I never really sought out. I think Patti Lapone's Tony performance is on YouTube. So I've only seen that. I recently got the soundtrack for the original Broadway with Patti Lapone at the library. And I get through like a few songs and I'm like, I want Madonna. <laughs> like I love Patti Lapone, but I'm like, I want Madonna. I kept my promise Don't keep your distance Chris and I saw in college we went to go see Evita at the Pantages we're really excited I think we paid like $70 or something for these tickets and then we did not like the show (laughs) (laughs) and in the middle of intermission like I've never been to a show where I was like well should we leave? (laughs) but like it's not like we get our money back. I guess right. we'll just stay. <laughs> like, oh my god! So well, so what was it? Was it the performers? Was it the staging of it? it could what have was been it? Everything, but like also, I didn't realize at the time, but now I have realized with other shows too. Just because the movie version is a certain way, it doesn't mean the stage show version is that way. Like I really like the movie The Wiz, but then I saw like a stage version and it was completely different. Like it had the same songs but not in the right order or like the book was different. So, I think it was kind of like that. Like at one point the mistress gets the song Another suitcase Another in suitcase in another hall. We've never seen her before and then we never see her again. What? And Chris and I were like, "What the why does the mistress get a song? Did you yell out like "Stop the play"? You did it wrong. It's just things like that where I was we like, to. I was like, obviously the movie was an improvement, like from the show that original. You know what I mean? So maybe we just like the movie and we shouldn't have seen the show. Well, I think it was like not great direction. I don't remember any of the performances being like memorable. I don't and I think that we also had a movie bias, mm-hmm. <laughs> a Madonna bias. Totally. But I do also think that there's some fundamental differences between the stage version and the movie version beyond just aesthetic is that the, I feel like the whole attitude of the movie is very different. And I think Another Suitcase in Another Hall is exactly emblematic of that in that it's a very touching ballad that is given to, in the movie, the Ava character. And it's kind of the moment where we see her being really vulnerable and really connect to that character. I don't expect my love affairs to last for long Never fool myself that my dreams will come true Being used to trouble, I anticipate it But all the same, I hate it Wouldn't you? So what happens now? Where am I going to? Where am I going to? In 
the stage version, you don't. You do that with a completely random side character. It's a beautiful song, but then, like, you don't really care about that character. None of her story means anything, really, to the movie. I mean, maybe you can look at it as kind of a mirror of Ava, but... But that's just a moment. In the show, she gets a whole song. Like, why? Yeah, and it feels like maybe, like, Patti Lapone had to go change or something. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, like, that's what happens when musicals are built around, like, who Uh needs to be on stage when. Hmm. Patty needs a potty break. Yeah. But (laughs) I feel like the performance of Madonna and the movie itself just makes that character into kind of a human, whereas the musical itself is much more of a political satire, and it's, I think, sharper and a little meaner. And actually, Patty Lapone's quote that you just read also kind of reminded me of my reaction to the stage version, because I also listened to the Patty Lapone soundtrack and also could barely get through a a full song because I just didn't like not only the performances because they obviously sound different and they're less like fun music to listen to and more kind of stagey I guess and more edgy but also like I feel like the show has kind of a weird misogynist streak when it's performed in its original version and I didn't realize the extent to which that had been kind of sawed off in the Madonna version, but now it's really hard to go from that version back to the original version that really is kind of a slut-shaming thing for the character of Ava. Is it because it's mostly from the from the perspective of the Che character, whereas in the movie I feel like I get Che's perspective, which is, you know, Argentinians, like the the lower class people or just everybody because he's critical of her Mm -hmm. but also i feel like i get her perspective too and who she is right yeah i think it's definitely that is sorry to keep talking about (laughs) avita the movie but i feel like you get like a lot of perspectives and you you see like what this class thinks and what that class thinks and what she thinks and in the Mm -hmm. stage show it's kind of this very outside perspective and she's kind of a one-note character i feel like she's just kind of there might be moments when she's a little bit vulnerable but even I tried to listen to the songs that I really love Madonna's performance and and the character and kind of the emotion she brings and I got none of that from Patti Lapone. Yeah, I rewatched most of the filmed version of Evita in anticipation of our recording session and I did think that it really deepened the character relationships and broadened the perspectives that built up to the story. Like, I I thought it was a lot more effective. I I don't think I could see a stage performance of it. Because I do think, Chris, that you're right, that there's a kind of slut-shamey element to it. But also kind of this element of, like, most of the women, I would say, in Andrew Lloyd Webber's musicals are kind of ornamental rather than instrumental. They kind of do what the plot requires them to do and change in the ways that the plot demands that they change rather than from any kind of deep inner conviction of their own. It's like most of the characters who get these, like, complicated, deep convictions and motivations are the male characters in his musicals. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of his shows, and I'm not that familiar, but the ones we've talked about so far are very male-heavy, and it's interesting, this is one of the rare ones that has a female protagonist, and a very complicated female protagonist, and she is given a lot of contradictions. Like, she's not a simple character, she's not just a bitch, and she's not you know, she's certainly not a saint. But I feel like maybe Tim Rice is the one who had the vision of the interesting female character and kind of built a lot of that into the lyrics because it's there. And Madonna's mostly singing the same lyrics from the show. So it's possible to interpret it that way. But I feel like the way that the show got cast and staged ended up being very not nuanced in terms of the Ava character and and letting her be kind of more of a vulnerable person who's actually really driving the story. 
I think what's interesting of this podcast is that we're talking about theater, so there's no like definitive version because you can see we can love Avita the movie, which has the same music and lyrics, and then we could see the stage show and not like it at all. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, and I think we're, you know, we'll get into that with even more musicals in this in this episode where I don't like, well, which one is it that we should like be like Angela Webber? What a genius or Angela Webber. This sucks. <laughs> like right. it's, it's interesting because there is no like definitive like, well, this play sucks and this one's awesome because even with Jesus Christ Superstar, I love the NBC production of it. There are other productions or like soundtracks where I didn't, couldn't care for it at all. Mm-hmm. So it's really it's just interesting how if we're just basing this on the music and lyrics of Evita, like I think they're great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I think they're fantastic. Still, I've even appreciated even more like being more grown up and like taking in the history. And uh, there's this website called Genius Lyrics. It does it for everything, but I love reading musicals on it. And they do like little annotations that people can add. And I went through for a lot of these shows and I don't know the Bible very well. So I did it for like Jesus Christ superstar and what these references mean. And for Avita, like when she goes to Buenos Aires, uh, just Buenos Aires, the song, like they, they would have little annotations of like, this is what she's talking about. And this is this area of Buenos Aires she's talking about. And I just like, felt like I was learning a lot just being on this site, like actually like diving into the lyrics. What's new? Buenos Aires. I'm new. I wanna say I'm just a little stuck on you You'll be on me too I get out here when it's hottest Stand back, you wanna know what you're gonna get in me Just a little touch of star quality Fill me up with your heat, with your noise, with your dirt, overdo me Let me dance to your beat, make it loud, let it hurt, run it through me Certain to impress Tell the driver this is where I'm staying Hello, when is that? Get this Just look at me, just up somewhere to go We'll put on a show Yeah, when I went to Buenos Aires, I listened to Evita there and got excited about seeing things like the Casa Rosada, which is where mm-hmm. she gave her speeches from. And it was really the first context I had to know anything about Buenos Aires was through her and I think that's true of a lot of people like you go to Buenos Aires now and there's Ava Perón stuff everywhere like they Mm. are really milking it (laughs) (laughs) so as far as music and lyrics I think this show is still fantastic yeah this is a really funny show and I think unlike a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber's other musicals it's very clever like like witty I think a lot of his musicals tend to be a lot more down the middle in terms of the emotions and, and hammy and on the nose yeah. mm-hmm. I was trying to be yeah. nice yeah uh, <laughs> then Seth came along <laughs> yep and obviously that's a lot of that is due to Tim Rice who is the lyricist but something like Good Night and Thank You is just such a funny song to listen to like it's hilarious. Good night and thank you, whoever. She's in every magazine, been photographed, seen she's known. We don't like to rush, but your case has been packed. If she's missed anything, you could give her a ring, but she won't always answer the phone. Oh, but it's sad when a love affair dies, but we have pretended enough. It's best that we both. 
Which means There is no one, no one at all Who never has been and never will be a lover Male or female Who has been an iron In fact they rely on Tricks they can try on their partner They're hoping their lover will help them Or keep them, support them, promote them Don't blame them, you're the same and I actually think that's one of the tracks that works a little bit better than others as a stage version versus the movie version, just because it's more of a theatrical kind of song and it's very funny and meant to be very kind of brassy. I was going to say Perone's latest flame is the same thing for me, like where it's got like some sass and sarcasm and like it's the upper classes saying just how much they don't like her. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a hilarious song. That's a song that it took me a lot longer to appreciate. Like, it wasn't a song that I would put on when I was younger and listen to. But as I got older, that became one of my favorite tracks. Just because, again, it's so funny. And it just has this very holistic view of what all kinds of people are reacting to her. And there's a lot of hypocrisy in the song. And there's just, you really get a sense that, like, even though these people are all being critical of her, they're also bad people, kind of. They're mm-hmm. <laughs> snooty. And it, it, it does a lot in a song where we don't even know these characters, but the whole story becomes so clear from that song. And I just think that's such brilliant storytelling and writing to get like all these complicated Argentinian politics that most people are not at all familiar with into a musical that's actually like fun to listen to and catchy is I'm I'm very impressed. Like a lot of musicals do not have such detailed plotting and don't even attempt to kind of go into class politics in the way that it does yeah that's why i would definitely say like i recommend people watch evita like the 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 movie version with madonna because i think especially like that song and many of the other songs really kind of frame and stage those class politics angles of the story very effectively and again in a way that kind of you know, is not hammerheaded and nailing the point square in the face. Yeah, I feel like this is the one singular musical of Andrew Lloyd Webber's <laughs> that doesn't have that kind of cheese element, or at least it's very much more muted than in the rest of his. There isn't really a number like Jesus Christ Superstar or Go-Go Joseph or Memory that you can kind of point to and you just are like, whoa. I mean, Don't Cry For Me, I guess. I was about to that. say, we have to like mention that song because it's honestly one of his like most popular songs. Yeah of all time Don't Cry For Me Argentina I never really cared for that song like I think if you're able to sing it then that's awesome like a power ballad for you but as far as like (laughs) and a power ballad for you too (laughs) (laughs) but like it never really like hit me as much as the other songs on the soundtrack that aren't very you know um, um, well known yeah, that's really true. It's weird in a way that that one is the most famous because that's not a song that I listen to. If I do, it's probably the Madonna dance remix version. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and I think that there are a lot of like really genuinely like kind of adult 
songs on this, which is not also true of very much Weber. I'd be surprisingly good for you is a genuinely like kind of sexy seduction song. Yeah, that's what I think was most surprising for me is like recognizing this time around how he accomplishes bodiness in these without ever being hammy, which literally, and I can now say this with some relative authority, he does not do in basically (laughs) anything else he ever made in his life. (laughs) Yeah, just the combination of politics and then that, like, kind of adult humor and, like, they are real people and they feel like real people who are really motivated by, like, adult things. And that is something that I don't think we're going to see again. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, and it's also, like, so interesting that... For all of the other projects he's done where the premises are very off the wall, that something like this that has a premise that's grounded in a real story would then also be grounded so much more. Like, it's kind of impressive, um, given the rest of his career, even with his other things that I've liked the music of. Which will lead us careening straight into the junkyard. <laughs> indeed, Chris. Indeed. That's all I have to say about this one. That brings us then to Cats, a sung-through British musical composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber, based around the Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats by T.S. Eliot and produced by Cameron Mackintosh. By this point, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice had split up creatively. <laughs> oh, yes. <they> had. <laughs> Rather acrimoniously. Sad. Come back, Tim. Come back. The musical tells the story of a tribe of cats called the Jellicles in the night that they make what is known as the Jellicle Choice and decide which of them will ascend... <laughs> I know, I can't even... <laughs> I can't even get through the plot <laughs> You guys, we're going to have to restart Chris's heart because he just... I love, that you, I love that you even try to share a plot synopsis of cats, and it's not just meow, 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 meow. The commercial has more nuance than this one. I'm almost done. You haven't gotten to the heavy side layer, Becky. They're going to the heavy side layer. <sighs> the key thing is that the cats introduced the song standard memory, which is far and away one of Andrew Lloyd Webber's biggest hits of all time. The first performance of cats was in 1981. It opened in the West End in London then, and with the same creative team on Broadway in 1982. It won numerous awards, including Best Musical at both the Lawrence Olivier Awards and the Tonys. The London production ran for 21 years and the Broadway production for 18 years, both setting new records. It's the longest running show on Broadway, right? Uh, well, as of 2018, Cats is the fourth longest running show in oh. Broadway history and was the longest running Broadway show in history from 1997 until 2006 when it was surpassed by The Phantom of the Opera. Cats is the sixth longest running West End show. It has been performed around the world and has been translated into more than 20 languages, not just into Cat. 
Why? <laughs> in 1998, Cats was turned into a made-for-television film. The musical has grossed over $342 million. I would like to question your uses of the word made and film. <laughs> <laughs> and for. <laughs> and television. I have a funny cat story. So, <laughs> so I saw this on Broadway when I was 10. We got pretty good seats in the orchestra. And I was with my parents and my sister. And I noticed in the very front row, before the show started, there were two empty spots in the front <laughs> row. And me and my sister were like, we're going to go sit there in the front row. Uh, even though we weren't like, I think we were like 10 rows back. And so we went there and sat, and then the lights started to dim, and then my mom was like, no, you should come back, because people like you might be taking someone's seats. So <laughs> the thing about the production of Cats <laughs> is that there are cats, <laughs> like actors as cats, going down the aisles to the stage. Like, they, like, do their little slinky cat moves in the aisles. Through the whole run-up to the beginning of the yeah, show. Yeah, and so... <laughs> The lights had dimmed. Me and my sister were scurrying back to our seat, and we just fucking collided with the cat. <laughs> and the Becky cat was and her like, "Sister killed a cat." The cat was like, "Are you okay?" Like, cause we're like little girls, like getting hit in the head with a cat. <laughs> um, that is what I remember most about that show <laughs> when I was ten. Did you make a jellical choice to collide with the cat, or was it an accident? It was an accident. Okay. But I could only focus on that for the rest, that I that I just hit an actor. Um, <laughs> I, I, too, would have liked to hit one of the actors from the show. <laughs> but I remember, even when I was 10, being really confused, <laughs> because I felt like I was missing something. That I Because I remember being... I don't know if the word is bored or confused, but I remember looking around the the audience and just kind of taking in the... It was full. Totally full. Um, and I feel like I wouldn't have done that if I was actually, like, you know, paying attention to what was on the stage. So Yeah, so, I mean, to put it charitably, there is no story to this musical. Um, the lyrics for it, with the sole exception of the song Memory are taken entirely and only from the T.S. Eliot book of poems. Where's Memory from? Memory had lyrics written by Trevor Nunn after another T.S. Eliot poem called Rhapsody on a Windy Night. And there are a couple other songs from it, including the moments of happiness that were taken from passages in other T.S. Eliot poems. Andrew Lloyd Webber had begun composing these songs in late 1977 and premiered the compositions at a music festival. Due to the Eliot state asserting that they write no script and use only the original poems as the text, the musical had really no identified plot, and many of the actors were also confused about what exactly they were doing. So did he write Cats when he was 15, like the music to it, or that was just him starting to think when he was 15, oh, I would like to do this one day, and it developed over It seemed the more like the latter. Like, it okay. was like a very slow-burning kind of project that he worked on for a long, long time, put down a lot, that kind of thing. Okay. Chris, did you have any history with the cats? I have a very brief history, which uh, I shared before that my grandfather listening to the Vita soundtrack was what kind of got me into that. That was also the first way that I heard anything from cats. I have a memory of walking down the stairs in their house to the song Mr. Mistopheles, or the <laughs> whatever it's called. The magical Mr. Mistopheles. I'm an old cat, produced seven kittens right out of a hat. And we all say, oh, well, I never was there ever a cat so clever as magical Mr. Mistopheles. 
and it's very catchy. It's the only song from Cats I know besides Memory. And I was like, oh, well, this is kind of intriguing. Like, I don't, I don't know what this is from. And I heard that it was from Cats. And then quickly realized that Cats was not for me. I did not want to see it or listen to more Cats. I thought maybe it was like a fun aside from like the rest of the show. But no, the, the whole show is basically just that. And oh, well, I never. Yeah. <laughs> so as I briefly encapsulated earlier, my history with Cats is extensive and shameful. <laughs> Becky has tried throughout this process to anchor me to Cats as though I had basically seen no other kind of entertainment in my youth. Seth, you did it. You saw Cats That's seven the thing. times. That's the thing. You weren't wrong. It was pretty accurate. Um, it, in Only in retrospect, when I you know, really expanded my musical palette far beyond those kind of formative things. Did I come to realize how cheesy Cats was? I would have heard some of the songs originally on one of those kind of highlights of Andrew Lloyd Webber compilations. And Cats was one of the first ones where I was like, no, we need to get the full soundtrack to this. I need to hear all of this. I need to see this. And I saw it again, like six or seven times, I think. Why did you like it so much? Again, I think as Chris was kind of saying earlier, like there's such an element of showmanship and theatricality and this one in particular Cats is such a dance musical that I think I was just kind of you know taken in by the the taken in by the theatricality and showmanship of it and went along with and enjoyed the music because there are so many different styles and genres even within individual songs like they'll switch up the genre and do all kinds of key changes and tempo changes and um, it, it was just interesting to me in a way that most other music that I even that I thought was catching music uh, didn't really excite me in that same way certainly in terms of what I think of it now I have come to see how cheesy it is and while there are still definitely songs that I think are absolutely gorgeous like Memory I still think is a really beautiful song um and there there's several other ones there the character Grizabella who's like a kind of formerly glamorous Norma Desmond cat um, the other favorite song I have is sung by Grizabella the Glamour Cat, and it's the song called Grizabella the Glamour Cat, uh, where she's kind of singing about how everyone rejects her, and she ends up being the cat who's, like, chosen basically to die and go to heaven is the whole concept of the play, uh, and, like, to be reborn again, theoretically. It's, again, it's very much nonsensical. My history with the T.S. Eliot poems actually goes beyond just the musical as well, because in elementary school, we had a speech tournament, and I did a spoken word recitation of a couple of the T.S. Eliot cat's poems. You didn't dance along with it? I did not. I neither danced nor pranced. Um, but... How are you still alive? Honestly, it's a wonder to me every day that I still am. I I think there was a novelty to me at the time of the kind of wordplay and the way that T.S. Eliot wrote it and like the fun kind of way that he wrote those poems. But again, I also think those original poems are just so lightweight and not only not about anything of consequence, but just fluff um, (laughs) that it's still kind of a hairball, really. It's it's kind of a hacky situation. It still baffles me that this counts as a musical. <laughs> technically, it's a musical, but it, there's technically 
Oh my god. Okay, so <laughs> this show is terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, memory is a beautiful song. That means nothing. The lyrics mean nothing. Yeah, and I mean, I'll say that we tried to watch it together, and that did not stick. And I ended up rewatching basically all of it again on my own. Oh my god! And it does not play much better. Okay, here's my theory of why this is an incredibly successful, popular show around the world. There is no plot, so foreigners who come to New York or go to whatever country that it plays in, they're not missing anything. It's just dancing. And, and also, the the other crucial element, people love cats. Okay. <laughs> well, they're kind of <laughs> creepy. We, can't, we not, can't overlook that. It's not real cats on stage. <laughs> but I feel like that has to be it. But that there, it, There's nothing to miss. So when you when you go see it, you don't have to worry about following along with a plot. And and there's there's at least, you know, at least the staging is probably interesting. Maybe not to 10 year old me, but <laughs> but like in general, like you like seeing the dancing. So it's basically just a dance musical. And and with jibber jabber, that means nothing. But when I watch it, I feel like I'm watching a musical in another language. I'm like, what is going on? What are they talking about? I don't know these words. ESL, the musical. Someone explain what is happening to me. I don't know if I've ever had such a negative reaction to anything that we have covered on the podcast. Wow. Besides Roger Rabbit? this music. No. Uh, wow. But, like, wow. So not okay, like the music, or do you mean just the, the whole combination the whole of thing. cat people <laughs> singing cat nonsense? I do have to. I have to say that Chris was was saying uh, I don't like it. I don't like it over and over. I don't like this. I don't like Basically it. Basically from frame one. And Chris, if you had only paid attention to the character of Monkus Trap, you would know that he's the storyteller, <laughs> and he's emceeing the whole thing, and he could have. You know, helped lead you through. <laughs> but, or Chris, what about old Deuteronomy? <laughs> Again, I'm not hearing words that make any sense to me. Uh, my thought going into this, like, because I didn't really know very much about Cats. I knew it was kind of a silly musical. So I was, like, expecting, like, that. And I didn't really think that people dressed up as cats dancing and singing was really going to be my jam, but I was astounded by just how put off I was. I mean, I could make a lot of comparisons to what this is, but the two main ones that stuck out to me are this is like a full musical adaptation of that scene from The Shining with a little dog person like going down on someone. The other one is that it's like a child telling you all about each one of their My Little Ponies. <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> it is it really is it's it's actually a regression from the adolescent stage of Andrew Lloyd Webber in his earlier career to like a five-year-old telling stories it's like this one does this and she likes this and doesn't like that but but, but then, <laughs> then they the, go over here then the old used to be pretty cat came back and she got on the tire and they floated I just don't understand how anybody could like this musical outside of the dancing there's no no story. It's boring. And I I've, I feel like I thought it was three hours long, but I think it's actually an hour and a half. But it feels so long because there's nothing driving you to keep watching it. It's just vignettes of, I'm a cat who does this. Well, I'm a cat who does like this. I'm a sad cat. <laughs> here, here I go off on a tire now. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no story. It's very much an enca encapsulation of Andrew Lloyd Webber in a lot of ways. I feel like... Uh, 
I mean, it's definitely probably the cringiest uh, of his works. Oh, I will argue that later, though. <laughs> okay. Uh, then I... Oh, oh God. Yes, I know what you're going to talk about. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it, it more than any of the other musicals, I think it has, like, the Andrew Lloyd Webber staple of the song that doesn't belong here. Uh, <laughs> uh, many of his musicals have, like, a very beautiful ballad kind of song that just doesn't really go with the rest of it. The um, shoehorn, if you will. <laughs> close Every Door uh, from Joseph. Another Suitcase in Another Hall kind of feels like that in Evita, especially because it's not, like, the movie version kind of corrected that, but in the original mm-hmm. version, it's just, mm-hmm. here's a random person singing a really pretty song. And memory is absolutely that song where it's it is it's a beautiful song it's very memorable people know it but it's like what does this have to do with cats it doesn't have anything to do with cats yeah so I don't like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I, I would say this is one of the ones where you can make a categorical statement that <laughs> a categorical statement yes an encapsulation of Angela Lloyd Webber <laughs> I I do not recommend <laughs> <laughs> with regret and with apologies to my previous self. <laughs> it's okay. I'm really ashamed that I ever liked Rent, so. And you should be. And you should be. And I didn't like any musicals, so I'm scot-free. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Scott. <laughs> that will lead us to Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber's most successful show, The Phantom of the Opera. Music by Andrew Lloyd Webber, lyrics by Charles Hart and Richard Stilgo. So, still no Tim Rice. <laughs> oh yeah. The play is based on the 1911 novel by Gaston Leroux. It's about an opera Parisian opera house that is haunted by uh, a phantom perhaps. A, a masked <laughs> phantom. He is tutoring a young chorus girl named Christine providing music lessons. And there's a jellical choice. (laughs) (laughs) He's basically obsessed with this young showgirl, wants to get her to become the lead in the opera. There's a lot of chandelier crashing, (laughs) trying to to kill uh, the main prima donna. Chandelier shenanigans, I call them. Um, And there's also a love triangle with um, another old flame of Christine's. It's pretty much, you ever go to a library and there's like a romance section and there's like the romance novel, like paperbacks? It's pretty much all of those. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a a chesty, romantic, you know, just, you know, the hand-drawn painted cover with the swooning woman in the man's arms. It's that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of romance. (laughs) books have taken their cue from this with the darker man. I mean, obviously, Fifty Shades of Grey is very much like kind of a phantom retelling of like the innocent woman and Mm -hmm. the dark man. Mm -hmm. It was nominated for 10 Tonys. It won seven, including Best Musical, Best Score, and Best Leading Actor in a Musical for Michael Crawford, who played the Phantom. The soundtrack for Phantom went four times platinum in the U.S. and eight times platinum in Canada. It was an enormous hit (laughs) as far as the soundtrack goes. The original production starred Sarah Brightman as Christine, and she was married to Andrew Lloyd Webber from 1984 to 1990. The show has an estimated worldwide gross receipts of $5.6 billion. My God. And it's the longest running show on Broadway of all time. I feel like when you think of Broadway, like if you were trying to play Pictionary and the thing was Broadway, all you would have to do is write a music note and draw a phantom mask. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. To the extent that like when you see cartoon representations of the New York City skyline, like the like quote unquote typical Broadway signs that you see, like phantom, that mask is there with the rose, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's... Yeah, can you even, I can't even think of something iconic before Phantom came along that would be like, oh, that's Broadway. You know what I mean? Maybe Les Mis, or was that? Les Mis was around the same time. Okay. 
I think there's not I, really any like symbology from that. No, like I guess the French flag, the, but not the, really. No, the like, girl in front of the flag. That's no. the yeah. only thing. But that's. I think actually, Les Mis was after Phantom. Um, but like, yeah, when you think of when I, I literally would probably draw that <laughs> if I had to be like Broadway, that's what I would draw. So that's just out how huge and iconic and connected to Broadway in general this show is. Um, so I, I mean, this was, as I said, one of my favorite shows. It was one of the first shows I ever saw. I loved playing the music on the piano. I sang the music. Um, I used to have a really high soprano voice. Um, Me too. That I was very proud of. <laughs> and I could sing along with Christine's part. Like, I could hit the notes. And for a while, I thought I wanted to be an opera singer because I thought this was opera. And I could hit, <laughs> but I could hit the notes. Um, and it was, I was listening to the soundtrack in the car today with my husband and I was like, I want to see if I can do it. <laughs> and I, I hit like the, the, at the end of the song, the Phantom of the Opera, he's like, sing to me, my angel of music. And she like goes up these scales. Mm-hmm. I could hit the first level. <laughs> oh, poor level Mike. One. <laughs> level one. <laughs> I could hit level one. And then I tried for a level. There's like five levels. And he's like, honey, I love you. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, <laughs> You're not going to get it. So it was very sad because now I'm much more in the in the phantom range than the Christine range. <laughs> um, did you guys have um, a strong connection to this musical? Like I said, I did see it when I was young and enjoyed the soundtrack, but it was kind of a basic uh, connection, which I think the story is, is very kind of a broad, more of an outline of a story than it is necessarily like really going into details about things like Evita does. And I had the soundtrack, but I didn't listen to it very much because none of this music, like it wasn't, you know, Buenos Aires from Evita, like kind of upbeat and, and fun to listen to. It's not opera, but it's very classical sounding. Eventually, I did sort of develop an affinity for the music of the night, which is sort of the big ballad from this, uh, probably the most famous of the ballads from this. And I think that's a really beautiful song and has very um, beautiful lyrics. And that was really, that's really the only part of this that I have a real connection to. Nighttime sharpens, heightens each sensation. Darkness wakes and stirs imagination silently the senses abandon their defenses helpless to resist the notes I write for I compose the music of the night So I have some trivia about the song Music of the Night. The tune for this song started out as a love song Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote to Sarah Brightman while he was still with his first wife. And it was called Married Man. (laughs) Whoa! Um, Come on, buddy. And this doesn't usually happen, but he was able to repurpose the melody and put it into Phantom. And Sir Baron, (laughs) you are a dirty dog. And that's all I have to say about that. Sometimes when they would do concert versions of Phantom, Christine would sing it because she's like, this is the song written for me. (laughs) But the Phantom sings it in the show. But it's all, it's a little creepy. (laughs) Ew. Yeah, I mean, the subtext of the song in the show is a writer, a uh, composer, (laughs) seducing a young actress. uh, And he's kind of a, you know, dark, mysterious figure. (laughs) 
who, you know, she probably really shouldn't be going after. (laughs) And yet she's, yeah, uh, gross. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Seth, uh, what was your connection to Phantom? Well, I mean, as I mentioned before, I saw this countless times. Um, (laughs) I saw it in multiple cities. I saw it at least once in New Orleans, many times in St. Louis, and once on Broadway. I knew every word. I had the libretto. I had a phantom mask. (laughs) And the hat and the, like, cape and cowl and that. For Halloween, did you dress up? At least once. At least once, yes. For Halloween, I'm going to dress up as you dressing up as the phantom. I think you can pull it off. If anyone can, I believe in you. You'll have the little red boots that he wore when he was little, too. I think the music in this was definitely my favorite of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, just overall. There were just so many, like, heavy hitters in it. In preparation for the podcast, I re-listened to the whole soundtrack. Not the highlights, but the whole thing. Yeah. I've always skipped some songs on the soundtrack, Mm -hmm. just because it's also, like, a double CD. But I definitely think it still has some of the best songs and especially the best lyrics that Andrew Lloyd Webber ever wrote. It occurs to me now how goth this actually is. Like, all of this is super goth. Like, even, like, all the electronic elements in the Phantom of the Opera song are like a Bauhaus song or something. It's just a really goth pop kind of musical. So it's really interesting because it was a part of how my own musical vocabulary expanded. But yeah, I still think Music of the Night is beautiful. I think my favorite song overall from this soundtrack and one of my favorite Andrew Lloyd Webber songs ever is The Point of No Return, the song where the Phantom is, like, singing about the fact that Christine, the chorus girl, is, like, deciding to kind of come into his world and, you know, star in his opera that he's writing and join in what is obviously a relationship with him. The point of no return The final threshold So good. I'm swooning over here. I'm swooning. (laughs) Yeah, I like that track, too. It's a fresh track. (laughs) Well. Um, I think overall the story is, again, pretty thin, which is a running theme in most Andrew Lloyd Webber things. Um, But because of the fact that it's kind of centered around this opera house, I think that kind of lends itself to the story being at least more coherent than something like Cats. It's not saying much. (laughs) Well, it's not, because it's like, especially upon revisiting it, there's not really much to these characters. You know, it's like they kind of reveal themselves from their performances and reveal their attitudes and stuff, but you don't really get much of a sense that these people are motivated, again, by anything other than what the plot, and specifically, like, what the Phantom wants. Like, he's basically the only thing that kind of drives the story. I feel like all Andrew Lloyd Webber productions can be uh, related to a cheese. I would call this one a solid aged cheddar. (laughs) 
It is. It is. I appreciate it's, that. You know, like a, it's a crowd pleaser. Are we talking a you sharp? Can put it out. No one's going to say no to that. <laughs> is this a sharp or extra sharp? I don't think it's too sharp. Okay. I think that would okay. off-put some people. I like the aesthetic of it where it's a mix of like darkness and elegance. And it is. It's very kind of faux once you actually are an adult and <laughs> think about <laughs> the implications of this relationship. It's, it's a very like Beauty and the Beast kind of story. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Uh, it doesn't really flush out the female character at all. And it's a problematic relationship. At least it's kind of presented as a problematic relationship. But, I mean, she's basically like a zombie who falls into trances. <laughs> as we watched in the music video. Yeah. There's a really awful music video that I'm sure we will share. She has no agency. It's like, it's up to like the other love interest of her to rescue her or not rescue her. Like she can't even make the choice to be like, you know, I think I might not be into this disfigured freak. Yeah, it's like she doesn't really seem to ever have an independent thought of her own. No. At all. So it's really kind of, I feel feel like, sub-Disney storytelling. And it kind of works on that level of the songs are engaging to listen to and fun, and you don't have to think very hard about it. And it's very easy to follow most of the plot. Yeah. (laughs) It's... It's a crowd pleaser. Yeah. It's it's super entertaining, and I have not listened to it in a very long time. And so listening to it, I I tried to listen to the full soundtrack, which I've never owned. I've only owned the highlights. Mm. And I didn't care for anything. I wasn't missing out. Like, that wasn't on the highlights. Yeah. So I don't know what that really says about the show that I felt that's like probably, I didn't. That's probably pretty accurate. Yeah. Even on the highlights, I have to skip at least half the songs. Like, They're always skippable ones. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not great as far as if the show holds up but i still feel like in general the music is beautiful um it's super melodramatic and theatrical but that's what the opera is and i feel like more than any other show his like melodrama fits with the subject matter like if this show wasn't melodramatic then it wouldn't be a show about the opera right totally like so it totally fits like and if like if you know what you're getting, which is a very melodramatic fairy tale kind of story, you are not going to be disappointed. The music is beautiful. Depending on who you see, like the singing is probably gorgeous because it has to be because these are not easy songs to sing. Um, unless it's Gerard Butler. Unless it's Gerard Butler. <laughs> oh god. Which so, I should say, I still have not seen. Don't 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 watch the movie. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Um, they could have made a great fan of movie because it could have been really goth. It could have been like. Uh, interview of a vampire like dark and and romantic but like kind of erotic or well i mean weirdly what i was thinking of because i think the the masquerade sequence especially reminds me of this is eyes wide shut a little bit where there is that kind of like gothy um something of like not secret societies but definitely like aristocracy is all throughout the whole play um but yeah i think they could have made a much darker vision of that yeah Yeah, joel schumacher directed it who is kind of infamous (laughs) for camping up (laughs) batman uh amongst other things and like he cast gerard butler who had never sung ever and like i don't think he's too handsome a guy but in the movie he's too like they take off his mask at one point and he's like still hot (laughs) 
I was like, he's barely got like a, a gross face under there. <laughs> like, come on, yeah. oh god, come on, don't watch the movie. It, it makes me sad for like Patrick Wilson, who plays Raoul in it, who like is a good singer and you know does a good job and is totally perfectly cast. But if you don't have the Phantom, you don't you don't really have no. much. And yeah. I let, you just got the opera. Emmy Rossum <laughs> is fine, but she's got no presence. You know, they just, I think it was cast. It was, there's, it's, let's just pretend it doesn't even exist. Like, don't yeah, watch it. We, we weren't talking about anything <laughs> just now. Um, I, so I feel like Andrew Lloyd Webber's best qualities really fit this subject matter. Um, it's not too deep. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, when you see it live, which I guess I've seen three times. <laughs> like, I don't know how I, you've seen it seven times, Seth, but like, I don't know why I saw it three times, but, um, I, it's it's fun to watch because there's beautiful performances. There's a chandelier that falls, I think, once or twice. There's, you know, things that appear in the mirror, and there's like a, a what is it like a gondola that the mm-hmm. Phantom takes her on. It's very Disney. Yeah. Oh, and it's always very beautifully staged. Like Cats was kind of marked in how static and unchanging and boring the staging was, but. Phantom is a very immersive and, like, many of the sets are, like, multidimensional and there's a lot of things going on in foreground and background. It's Yeah, and the costumes, like, with the masquerade part, everyone has these huge costumes yeah, and I, masks. Like, it's it's really fun. I can, I can see why it's so popular. Yeah. It's interesting that you likened it to Disney because I also had that experience uh, feeling like it's more like a ride than yeah. a show because the yeah. things you're describing are all visual, like, things, mm-hmm. like kind of gimmicks or like things moving it's not you're not talking really about the music or the performances you're talking more (laughs) about you know like kind of aesthetic things which is not normally what you talk about with theater yeah exactly so i do have to say like so the song phantom of the opera when i first heard it again after like not listening to the soundtrack for years I just felt like I just got like chills, (laughs) like those notes, those few notes are just so iconic and so Broadway and so Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's just like when you like you could play that for anyone and people will be like, well, that's the Phantom of the Opera. It's remarkable, I think. I think it's one of the best melodies that he's ever written. The whole song itself is so over the top, but it's just perfect for what it is. Well, and I think it's worth noting here that like he was married to Sarah Brightman and he wrote this role specifically for her. Mm-hmm. And that really comes through. And I think she was kind of the perfect person for that role. And it's, you know, I've heard many other Christines and none of them are really the same. But I also think like, especially re-listening this time, like Michael Crawford can't be beat either. No, he's beautiful. Um, he's he just beautiful voice. absolutely has the most stunning voice. Yeah, it's hard not to like that title track. It, it's It feels very much like a guilty pr- pleasure because it's so iconic and just so cheesy. It, it's like, it's achieved like kind of like 
Titanic level, mm-hmm. like my heart will go on kind of status where it's just like you can't listen to it and not like think of certain visuals and just kind of feel like, ooh, like I'm embarrassed for myself. <laughs> right. But I also am kind of enjoying this. It's kind of like the monster mash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the songs that I used to love, and I, I still think it's just so beautiful, is Prima Donna, which is not the Phantom and not Christine. It's a bunch of the other, I guess, opera owners or mm-hmm. producers trying to convince the Prima Donna to stay. And, you know, even though something's trying to kill her. Um, so, and I just always loved listening to the soundtrack in general when I was younger, but especially this song where they're all singing at once and it just feels like an an opera piece Mm -hmm. and um it's just because there's always something new to listen to there's so many parts going on at once prima donna That's yep. one of the songs I personally skip over because it's ve- it has that very soprano-y uh, sound to it that I just like never really cared for. So that's why I would kind of skip through a lot of this and really am much more drawn to songs sung by the Phantom. One of the exceptions is All I Ask of You, which I think is another like really beautiful uh, love song from this. I really liked Prima Donna, too, and especially because of those kind of intertwining vocal parts. That was, like, one of the things about the soundtrack that, like, especially interested me, like, with my classical music background. Because most pop songs you hear will only have kind of one melody or a couple melodies going on at once. But a lot of these songs have, like, four or five going on at once. And it was really kind of just musically interesting. So personally, I feel like nowadays... I won't throw the Phantom on if I want to listen to a soundtrack. I'll throw on Book of Mormon or Hamilton or even Les Mis. I still will listen to the full, you know, the full album of of Les Mis. So I don't know what that really says (laughs) about, about how I feel about Phantom and if it holds up. I think it generally does. But I have to be in the right mood, and I'm not generally in, like, a melodrama mood. But I think it succeeds for what it is, but it's just something that I probably grew out of. Yeah, I kind of feel like, like, I don't think I would go see The Phantom again without a good reason to. Like, maybe someone I really love is in it, which I don't know why they would be. I feel like you're telling (laughs) us a story that you've been telling yourself a while now. (laughs) No, but it's just like, I... I feel like I get it, and I I had it, and it was great when I was 11 years old, but I don't feel like there was more <laughs> there to, like, rediscover. Like, I'd much rather go see almost any other musical. Yeah, I'd rather go see a musical I haven't seen before, you know? And it's like... And I also had such a connection to it as a kid, and visually developed such my own kind of, like, appreciation for it, and, like, the... I even, like, would do research on, like, the Paris Opera House and, like, learn about all that kind of stuff. And, again, I just kind of feel like I tapped that vein. Like, I I, I got what was able to be gotten from it. 
Yeah, I mean, I generally am a fan of something that is a dark romance, if it's actually dark, but this is kind of feels like 13-year-old, like, goth version of yeah, it. Yeah, French hot topic. Yeah. <laughs> hot topic. Or even, like, topic Fifty Shades show. of Grey, where it's like, if you're really into that, that's not what you're going to go for. So Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote a sequel to The Phantom of the Opera called Love Never Dies. It does. <laughs> <laughs> it takes place in 1907 in Coney Island. <laughs> And Christine is, is a character. In Just, it, that's as exactly what you'd expect from a sequel. Yeah. I we did go not, to Coney Island. I did not do any research, but I know that it's popular enough to, I think it's still playing in like England. Oh, and here. In, it was still playing in LA in last LA? year. Last year. I but I don't think anyone likes it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they go that's see it. That's about right. That's about right. <laughs> Again, it's, I think, I think Andrew Lloyd Webber's productions especially have come to represent like, the theater that you go see when you're like just going to do something <laughs> and to be entertained or when you're a tourist and you're visiting in LA or in New York. It's it's kind of like a Vegasy thing now, uh, yeah, which Phantom actually did go to Vegas for a while. Oh, oh God, that's that, not surprising. That's a good segue into the next show I wanted to talk about briefly. Um, so he did, he had way more musicals than what we're covering, but I do want to, there's three more I just want to like briefly touch on. And one is Starlight Express. <laughs> From 1984. Good God. Um, I saw this show in Vegas when I was 13, and I knew it was bad then. (laughs) Um, It is... Okay, so... (laughs) Starlight Express is inspired by three abandoned projects by Andrew Lloyd Webber, who decided to put them all together. (laughs) Wow. What not to do when you're a creator. (laughs) Three things that don't work, mash them all up. A train wreck, if you will. (laughs) Oh, yes, I will. One was a novelty pop single... Um, one was an animated Cinderella movie, not Disney's, another Cinderella movie. And one was an animated TV series based off Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> and he didn't, wow. he was developing all three of those and then pushed them aside and decided to build a musical kind of around all of them. So, uh, Starlet Express, I don't even know what the plot is. It's about a bunch of trains and the actors wear kind of train outfits uh, they and look they, like and transformers. They, yeah, they look like human transformers, but and they're wearing roller skates during the performance. Um, <laughs> it was nominated for seven Tonys, and it won one for best costume design. Sure, why not? Why not? Um, it is so the West End production is the eighth longest running musical in history, um, and oh it has been God. performed in Germany at its own custom built theater since 1988. So someone is liking Starlight Express up there. <laughs> That sounds Starlight Express. About right for Germany. <laughs> <laughs> like, I knew this was bad when I was 13. Like, okay. I There could be a debate, like, what's worse, Cats or Starlight Express? What's what's more embarrassing? I feel like Starlight Express wins because at least Cats has memory. <laughs> but, like, there's not yeah. even any song from Starlight Express that shines beyond Starlight Express. Yeah, well, I, like, the Starlight Express theme song was always on the compilations. It's a terrible song. And you are lying in bed With the covers pulled up tight And though you count every sheep You get the feeling that sleep Is gonna stay away tonight That is when you hear it coming That is when you hear the humming 
It's terrible. Ow. I don't know. Did you guys listen to this at all? No. <laughs> I watched like one clip of it that you that you made me watch. Uh, <laughs> I think it's basically just boy cats. <laughs> it's like the little girl telling you about my little ponies and then her brother is like, Look at my Transformers. <laughs> this one does this thing and this yes. one does that. And that Starlight Express song I can imagine it being uh like a good song in another musical if it had some kind of context but it's just like when you see people dressed in this way <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't really feel like it's telling a story at least in these clips i'm just like i, I don't i don't know what's going on here like the visuals and the um music just don't seem to go together yeah, I mean, yeah, I I honestly thought this show was a bomb. I think it's just critically known, you know, as n- not a good show, but it is, at least in Europe, <laughs> a very successful show. So, and it was in Vegas for a couple of years, so somebody's still seeing it. <laughs> well, so was Nomi Malone. That doesn't mean <laughs> <Yeah>. anything. <laughs> uh, the next show I just want to briefly touch on is Sunset Boulevard from 1993. Sunset Boulevard is based off the 1950 Billy Wilder movie, Sunset Boulevard, the movie that won a bunch of Oscars. It's a classic movie about fading film star Norma Desmond and a screenwriter she kidnaps. (laughs) She basically takes under her wing, I guess, to make her a star again. It was nominated for 11 Tonys and won seven, including Best Musical, Best Original Score, and Best Actress in a Musical for Glenn Close. But you have to note, that was a weird year at the Tonys, and many of the categories that year, for some reason, had one other nominee or no other nominees. So it wasn't much of a competition. That's weird. <laughs> Very strange. I, I did, did a lot of people get assassinated? Did Andrew Lloyd Webber <laughs> go on a killing spree to clear up his chances? I don't know, because... The other nominee for Best Musical is Smokey Joe's Cafe. There were no other nominees for Best Book of a Musical. And Glenn Close was, you know, I, I watched some clips and she seemed great in that role. But she only had one other person that was nominated for Best Actress in a Musical. But there were other musicals that year. I don't know what happened. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah, it's very strange. So Maybe they, like, didn't let revivals enter in, or something? Yeah, I mean, there was Showboat and there was something else. There was, there was revivals. But, like, yeah. usually, at least for Actress, they're all in the same pot together. So, very strange. There's another fun thing about this show. It set the record for the most money lost by a theatrical endeavor in the history of the U.S. Because it faced a lot of lawsuits from actresses who were supposed to play Norma Desmond. And then, for some reason or another, their contracts were not fulfilled. Now, that sounds like a good idea for a musical. (laughs) All of the actresses (laughs) fighting over the role of Norma Desmond. Yeah, Faye Dunaway was supposed to take over in LA after Glenn Close left but they the producers decided she wasn't doing a good enough job so they decided to just shut shut it down in LA so she sued got a settlement and they lost four million dollars in advance ticket sales and then Patty Alpone was promised the Broadway run and then Andrew Lloyd Webber didn't give it to her gave it to Glenn Close and then she sued and got four uh, one million dollars <laughs> so wow didn't not starting off right um, also though a lot of commitment to that character of norma desmond there <laughs> yeah very like, meta damn <laughs> so i i'm a huge fan of this movie i never listened to the soundtrack at all until we were going to do this for the podcast so i was like well this is a good opportunity i thought it was really mediocre I really didn't like it. I didn't think it was like the worst thing I've ever heard, but I was surprised by how much I thought it was completely, like completely forgettable or there are parts that I was actually annoyed by the music. 
literally the only bit of this I've ever heard was Glenn Close's, I think it was probably her Tony performance of it. Yeah, it was um, As If We Never Said Goodbye is her yeah, song. And I immediately felt like how pedestrian and middle of the road it was to the extent that I just never even gave a shit about checking it out, which is a shame, like, given, like, it's Glenn Close, come on, like, one of the greatest actresses. Um, and, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber is, like, a composer who's really good at using other material and incorporating that into music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tried to give this a chance, just kind of idly, like, thinking, I like the movie, like, mm-hmm. songs about Hollywood, like, old Hollywood could be fun, and tried to, like, put them on, and they just seemed really, really basic. Yeah. I mean, this was a, Norma Desmond is one of the greatest screen characters of all time, a very interesting female character, and so if anyone, like, could write a good musical about her, it, you would think it would be the guy who did Evita, but it feels like not even a little bit toward that, trying to, like, represent this kind of complex and difficult woman, and I just wish it had some of that humor. It, it really felt kind of humorless, or, like, kind of, it was much more cheesy, like, juvenile kind of humor than anything in Evita, and I think this really could have benefited from probably Tim Rice, but also just the Evita treatment. Yeah, one of my biggest complaints with this was that they took lines of dialogue from the movie, and I had watched the movie very recently before listening to this, so it was very fresh in my mind what was a line from the movie and what was original in this play. They took a lot of lines of dialogue and they made them lyrics, but it doesn't work because those lines of dialogue are dialogue. They're meant to breathe and be said in a different way. And when you jam them in a song, he says something that seems clever, but then you're immediately onto the next line you're singing the next line and it just like did not work at all. Um, so that really, really bugged me. Like they should have just taken the, like the basics of what these scenes were and made their own lyrics and maybe take like, you know, Mr. DeMille, I'm running for my close up, you know, one or two classic lines, but they did so, they took so much of the dialogue and made it lyrics. And I just felt like that did not work at all. Well, it's a good thing they learned their lesson about making movies into musicals. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. <laughs> and his most recent musical is School of Rock, premiered in 2015. I want to just briefly talk about it because I saw it here at the Pantages not too long ago. Um, I really like the movie. I don't know if you guys seen the movie i love the movie i've seen it many times i've seen it once and it was good (laughs) you like the jack black like i really like the movie i felt like the best song from the show was the song from the movie that andrew lloyd weber had nothing to do with yeah (laughs) and that was like a great finale but like everything else in the show i could not tell you i didn't see it that long ago i can't tell you one song title i can't hum you anything besides that one song at the end that was in the movie like it you would have no idea that andrew lloyd weber had anything to do with this performance um or like the score but also just like watching it didn't feel like an andrew lloyd weber show in any way like it didn't feel like the subject matter fit andrew lloyd weber yeah it seems like a really out of left field choice for him i don't know if it was just like why not or or something what are the song is it like all of the kids like are they singing yeah i mean it's it's jack uh jack black's character dewey singing and then i mean he's got most of the songs and then like the principal has a song or two and then their kids play and it's it was fun watching the actual children actors and actresses like play their instruments live because they actually could and that was probably the best part of watching it was just seeing how talented these kids are well i was just asking (laughs) mainly because it's a 
it's already a movie about musical performance. So it's like, are you just watching the kids? Like, here's my number. Here's my number. No, it's more like they're they're singing. You know, like how it is in a musical. Where and is the whole thing sung, or is it like spoken no, there's, dialogue? There's book scenes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they do have performances. They have a couple performances where I'm performing now, but it's generally just like a regular musical where it's like, I'm dealing with this issue. I'm going to sing about it. Hmm. Um, but it was... it That just seems conceptually too pure for him. Like, it doesn't seem like raunchy or campy enough. No, it was just... It was exactly the movie with a few extra yeah. scenes of the kids... At, not even all the kids, like three of the kids at home dealing with home life. Like it was, if you've seen School of Rock, the movie, and the, I mean, maybe it depends on the performance of the main character, but it just seemed like he was completely aping Jack Black's performance and adding nothing new himself. I was just like, all right. <laughs> it's like watching the movie live. I'd rather just watch the movie. But the, the Andrew Lloyd Webberness of it, there wasn't any. Like it, I, in a thousand years, if I didn't know he was part of this, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Yeah, the one element that I thought maybe made sense for him to do it is that this kind of story lends itself to a lot of different musical styles because people could be playing different instruments. And he does do a lot of different musical styles. Like he'll have like an Elvis-inspired song in Joseph or, you know, a kind of a Calypso song somewhere. But I don't actually know if that's true of this musical. No, I mean, it's it's more like electric guitar, you know, but it's nothing like Jesus Christ Superstar. Like, Jesus Christ Superstar, I feel like he's actually rocking, you know? And this was just, like, faux rocking. To introduce one other fact about Andrew Lloyd Webber that I think might be relevant to the trajectory of our discussion, uh, he is now worth more than 740 million pounds. <laughs> he weighs that much? <laughs> wow. It's amazing. Chris, the metric system is very different than our American ways of measuring weights. can you've converted that for us? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not Google. I don't do these things for free. Google does. You could have literally just <laughs> typed it into Google. Uh, who has the time? That's like over a billion, right? That's Yeah, that's easily over a billion. Um, so I do think that that is a man who has afforded himself the ability to crawl up his own ass. And he did that. <laughs> And but he did that with cats, so... <laughs> this is also true. He came out for a little while to do some other things, <laughs> then he went back up there. Is that what the tire actually represents? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it's clearly the case that Andrew Lloyd Webber feels he really has nothing to prove, and therefore doesn't really seem to try all that much anymore. No, I feel like... I don't know if he, I don't know. Does he hold up? Like, I'm still like, I'm not I sure. Don't, I don't know if he holds up. Like, I mean, I think I th what I would compare him to are artists like maybe Cindy Lauper, who sold tons of records, had really great hits, um, some of which were really good, and then just kind of, they were of that time. Yeah, I feel like there's not enough consistency to him to really say. Like, you can see a couple of similarities between certain shows, but, like, Avita is so different from Cats 
and Phantom that it like it doesn't even feel in really in any way like it was written by the same person. So it's hard to say is like and like Becky was saying, it's different productions of these things. So like I would generally say no, they don't hold up. But the lyrics and music of Evita as performed by Madonna <laughs> are great. And that's probably true of other pieces of his work, but I don't I don't know that there's any one production that really is great. Yeah, I think the summary judgment of how Android Weber holds up is eh. there's a couple of musicals where I'm like, oh, I wish I was there to see the original cast do this. Yes. And I don't feel that way about any of his shows where I was like, oh, if only I was there for the original cast. Mm. Um, it's very hard because I feel like you take someone like Sondheim or um, the people that wrote Les Mis and Miss Saigon or Rodgers and Hammerstein and you're like, well, if I like Rodgers and Hammerstein, I'm generally going to like all their stuff. Maybe I have a favorite, but it's generally all this. If I, lock, if I like Sondheim, I'm going to have favorites, but like maybe there's some more mediocre stuff. But generally, it's all pretty good. And this is like, I fucking hate cats, <laughs> but I love Evita. I'm starting to really like Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> you know, like, it's just like. I've never seen another composer for Broadway that's all over the place. Well, like Sondheim and and most, you know, composers have a through line. They have a consistent thing that they do that you can kind of point to and say that's them. And beyond a kind of like Disney-ish sensibility, which isn't even represented, I wouldn't say, in like Evita or, you know, some of his other shows. Like, I don't I don't know what that is. I, I, I can't really define, like, I don't know who he is as a person. I mean... See, I, I think music. I do know. I think I get it now. Um, especially, like, learning the extent to which he was a childhood musical prodigy. I think he suffered from that, like, child genius syndrome of everyone around you from your earliest memory being super approving and impressed by everything you do. And the result of that is you don't develop the kind of internal instincts, not to trim your own sails, but to, like, edit yourself effectively, to know the value in cutting away branches like so the tree can grow right you know that's that's a necessary tool and skill that i think is just as much key to writing as it is to music or even to theater and drama is you know being able to be told no <laughs> and like have some instinct or people around you who can you know tell you when your ship is not staring right and it does not seem like he really ever had that or had to develop it. I just think it's such a weird thing that you can ask me what my favorite musical is and I can say Evita. Oh, but not on stage. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's really bizarre that my favorite musical is maybe even something that I wouldn't like if I saw it again on stage. I, I would try it out with a different cast and hopefully it would be mm -hmm. better. But honestly, like with just like hearing the original version, I was still like not that impressed. So ultimately... <laughs> There's no answer to this episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, like, what can I even recommend? I, I personally would recommend watching the NBC Jesus Christ Superstar and watching the Evita movie. I don't know what else. Like, if you've never heard the Phantom soundtrack, I don't know if I would recommend it. I guess maybe if you've never heard it, 
It, you know what? But... At most, let's recommend the highlights of Andrew Lloyd Webber CDs. Yeah. Like, why not? I bet there's a lot of bad stuff on there, though. I, you know, you'll skip a few. You'll skip a few, but... Maybe this episode is all you need, and the clips that we have played you will get you by. Yeah, honestly, you guys, you don't need to go much deeper. <laughs> And those are all the jellicle choices we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next podcast, we'll be light as a feather, stiff as a board. We'll be putting a spell on you as we go back to the high school witch film, The Craft. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Please follow us on all our social media networks and subscribe to us and review us on iTunes, where you can suggest future episodes for the show. I've been Seth Pearson. I'm the Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) And I'm tired of the decline of Argentina with no sign of a government able to give us the things we deserve. Bravo. Thank you. Well, oh, I never. (laughs) Like a flower as the dawn is breaking The memory And you